Meanwhile, at the DC Nation, we are Night's <laughs> Entertainment. Here are the reasons for the wrong place. You're going to melt just like a cheap sandwich. And show you just how powerful I really am. Always hold on to all this. I know this will escape my sight, but those who worship me might be where my power green lantern lies. But let the universe howl in despair, for I have returned. We have no more use for this one. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways DC Nation, the podcast dedicated to reviewing all the amazing content DC Comics provides to you as its fans, most notably focusing on the TV shows Gotham, Flash, Arrow, Supergirl, and DC Legends of Tomorrow. Joining me, as always, is my co-host... Hey everybody, Michael J. Petty here. On this week's episode, Steve joins Nico as we continue our coverage of the fall 2016 television season with the next episode of Gotham, Mad City. And then I join Nico again as we review episodes of Supergirl... Flash, Arrow, and DC's Legends of Tomorrow, covering all of the Arrowverse shows on the CW. But before that, we're going to go kick things off with the News with Nico DC headlines. Ratings. Supergirl hits low on Halloween. This Halloween ratings were down as much as 14% at the 8 o'clock showing in the 18 to 14 demo across all networks. Drawing 2.2 million total viewers and a 0.6 demo rating per finals, Supergirl sustained one of the night's steepest drops, down 19 and 25% to series lows. Over on Fox, Gotham at 3.2 million and a 1.0 rating, and Lucifer 3.4 million and a 0.9 rating, each ticked down to hit or tie series lows. As I said, every network was down this week, so not too disturbing news, but not good either. Arrow casts Talia al Ghul with Continuum Andromeda's Lexadod. The CW's Arrow has targeted an actress with out-of-this-world sci-fi credentials to fill the key role of Talia al Ghul. TV Line has learned that Lexadod, whose TV credits include, but are not limited to, Andromeda, Continuum, Stargate, SG-1, and the 4400, has been cast in the recurring role of Talia, another daughter of Ra's al Ghul's and half-sister of Nyssa. Described as worldly and cultured, Talia is an elite warrior who doesn't pick sides, but but rather creates her own. Lexa Doig's TV credits also include episodes of Supernatural, Eureka, Smallville, and Primeval. Talia will first appear in episode 10. Wonder Woman goes to battle in new trailer. We've seen Wonder Woman in action in the DC Cinematic Universe. She appeared in Batman vs. Superman, and Gal Gadot owned the screen with her grace, poise, and fierce ass-kicking abilities. But what caused her to leave Themyscira and fight in the world of man? That's what Wonder Woman will explore. The newest trailer for the upcoming film shows more of why Diana decided to leave her idyllic home and join the fight. Simply put, the fight came to her. There's really no need to describe the trailer, just just go and watch it and follow the link in the ACC feed now to do just that. Fox's Gotham casts Banshee badass Ivana Milicevic as Selena's mother. Gotham fans will learn just how far from the tree Selena Kyle fell when Banshee alum Ivana Milicevic joins the Fox drama as the stealthy street rat's long-lost mother. A recurring role, Maria Kyle is described as a tough-as-nails operator with an arsenal of street smarts, world-class drifter who's able to hide her true self behind a variety of personas. A criminal through and through, she is willing to use anything and anyone to get what she wants. 
wants. Her one weakness, however, is the daughter she abandoned and the only person in the world she truly loves. No word yet on when Selena's mom makes her debut. Justice League cast Sierra and Hines as Steppenwolf. Next year, DC's Justice League will finally come together on the big screen for the first time as they go up against a common enemy. Now we finally have confirmation on which villain is going to menace the Earth in the League's first movie. Nerdis is reporting that Sierra and Hines has joined the cast of Justice League as Steppenwolf, the leader of Apocalypse's military. Hines has previously starred in Rome, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, Political Animals, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. But Game of Thrones fans probably know him best for his role as Mance Raider, the King Beyond the Wall. According to The Wrap, Steppenwolf will be a CGI-created character based on Hines' motion capture performance. Steppenwolf will also have a different design than the one used in the deleted scenes from Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. The good news is that if Steppenwolf is in this movie, it means that Darkseid can't be far away. Both Steppenwolf and his ruler Darkseid hail from Apocalypse, home of the evil gods in Jack Kirby's New Gods. Steppenwolf is actually Darkseid's uncle in the comics, and that familial relationship will probably carry over to the film as well. Steppenwolf isn't considered to be one of DC's top villains, but he played a key role in restarting the war between Apocalypse and New Genesis, the home of the benevolent New Gods. One of Steppenwolf's signature weapons is his Electro Axe, which will almost certainly show up in the Justice League movie as well. While Steppenwolf has been a virtually a fifth string villain most of his career, the New 52 Steppenwolf was presented as a more formidable adversary in the Earth 2 comic book series, where he invaded Earth on Darkseid behalf and helped to kill that world's Superman and Batman, as well as personally murdering Wonder Woman. The biggest reason that Steppenwolf will be the villain in Justice League is that director Zack Snyder is probably saving Darkseid for either the second or third film in that series. And that approach makes sense because Darkseid is one of the biggest and baddest villains that DC has, so it makes sense that he would be in the, ult- in the, the finale of the Justice League series, or trilogy. But Steppenwolf is a good place to kick off, to, to lead towards that. Anyway, this is a great get, as Sierra Hines is a great actor to play Steppenwolf. And that's News with Nico, DC Headlines for this week. All right, to kick off the reviews this week, we're going to bring Steve in, and we're going to talk about the seventh episode of the third season of Gotham, the Mad City season, entitled Red Queen. Jervis uses a powerful hallucinogen, Red Queen, to stop Jim from interfering with his plans. Meanwhile, the virus takes a stronger hold on Barnes, and a jealous Oswald tries to break up Edward and Isabella. It took a while, but Jim finally faced his demons on this week's episode titled Red Queen. Now he's officially back with the GCPD, right where he belongs. Barnes up freezing Gordon out on the Jarvis catch investigation, and it actually turned out to be a good thing for Jim. Why? Because Jim needed to go on a mind trip. Uh, he needed to delve into his psyche and face his demon. Without Jarvis and, her, and the Red Queen, it's probably not something he would have done on his own. Jarvis still isn't done causing trouble. Finding a way to sp- spread Alice's virus quicker with the use of a concoction called the Red Queen, which is a psychedelic drug with deadly consequences. Next, Jarvis and the Tweeds break into the morgue and take Alice's body to harvest the rest of her blood. Bullock and Barnes arrive on the scene and want to track down Jarvis before he can spread the blood. But when Gordon shows up offering his help, Barnes kicks him out 
and forbids interference, even his good old buddy Bullock refuses to help Gordon try to track down Jarvis on his own. Also, while we're talking about Barnes, I especially liked it when Barnes had the mad hatter on the ground at the Founders' dinner. As you can see, the virus spreading through Barnes, Tetz was excited about it. He could barely contain himself. I can hardly wait until Barnes finally crosses over to full-on baddie. Do you agree? Could touch really harvest enough drugs from Alice's body to infect a city the size of Gotham? Yeah, you know, it's all about distribution for Tetch. If he could aerosolize it or put it in a form that can spread more easily from person to person, then he could easily infect the entire city. But he doesn't need to infect the entire city. As we saw in this episode, he only needs to target a select few, and his efforts can be far-reaching. Had he been able to infect all the high-powered, rich founder-style people of Gotham, then the effects would have been much further felt than merely infecting a few poor people or random citizens. The targeted approach could cause more damage with less effort. Plus, had he infected the Court of Owls lady at the party, he could have started a major incident as she went insane and in her position of power, imagine the damage she could have done to the city. Of course, he didn't know how close he came to success, but he was very excited to see that the police captain was infected and could not wait to see how much damage and what damage and chaos that causes. So yeah, it's, it's it's all about distribution for touch. Now, I'm not usually a fan of dreams and hallucinations in stories. Most of the time, they are lazy plot devices for explaining a character's internal processes. Gotham doesn't completely step aside from that narrative trap, but Barbara's disturbing yet delighting position as Jim's shepherd through the subconscious makes up for any laziness this particular trope delivers. What did we learn from Jim's Red Queen trip? Basically, he wants to get married and have lots of kids with Lee, which is fine, but weren't we having so much more fun when Jim was reinventing himself as someone other than the self-righteous police officer who put more energy into judging criminals rather than catching them? Okay, maybe that's a little harsh, but I guess I'm just bitter. Do you see or learn anything that I missed or didn't mention from the Red Queen trip so far, Nico? Yeah, Steve, I have to agree with you that I'm not usually a fan of dream sequences or hallucinations for many of the same reasons you mentioned. They are often a cheap imitation of the internal dialogue that we often get in novels to help explain a character's thoughts. The beauty of film and television is that it is a visual media, and this means that they should be able to use visual cues to help us understand what the characters are thinking and feeling. There are actors that have made a living with the subtlety of a facial expression or a glance. When done correctly, a dream sequence or hallucination could actually give us insight into a character's mind and emotional state, and even voiceover monologues can deliver this information as well. Unfortunately, all of these techniques are so overdone and misused by TV that they have lost their effectiveness. And that is entirely true for about 70% of the hallucination sequences on Gotham as well. The cliched version of Gordon and Lee happily ever after, the pathetic Barbara in a sexy nurse costume, and a lame attempt at humor by switching her into a nun's habit, these were brutally simplistic and hackneyed. However, the conversation Gordon had with his dad potentially fixed the major issue I had with Gordon's character for the last season and six episodes, and the significance of the ring pushing the overall story forward was brilliant. Gordon, through his discussion with his father, remembered the Gordon code and motto, while we breathe, we shall defend. And I know you're going to jump into that in a minute, but he remembered who he was and took some major steps to becoming the 
Jim Gordon we know from the comics, film, and animated series. So that was all great stuff. Now, an interesting thing I actually looked up was the real Scottish Gordon clan motto was stay and fight, which is pretty close to the Jim Gordon family code of protection. And I like that. So while much of this hallucination scene was worthless, the final level of the trip with his father, that gave us two major plot points going forward. And for me anyway, it made the rest of it palatable. Plus, I did not enjoy the new Gordon this year and yearned for the traditional Gordon, or at least an indication that we were headed that way. And I think I've made that blatantly apparent in our last couple discussions. And that is what this episode delivers. So for me, despite its wandering, meandering way of getting there, it got us to a point that I really enjoyed. So for that, I could I could handle the rest of the trip. And I, I think you're going to talk a little bit more about the rest of what you thought of Jim's trip through the bazaar. Uh, yeah, the, the entire trip was just bizarre. Bruce wearing that mask was on. Or was that a mask of Gordon face? I don't know. Watching Bruce pulling out all of those beads from Jim's stomach was actually kind of gross. Yeah. Ben, ben when talking in tongues or whatever he was doing in the 50s Twilight Zone style family that he had with Lee was pretty much out there. Were the bees a symbol of Bruce's mom's necklace and the shooting? That was probably the weirdest part of everything. I know a lot of people are tired of Jervis, but I still think he's the best villain Gotham has had so far. And I really liked his craziness in this hour. Some of it didn't make sense, sure, but hey, the guy is nuts and this is Gotham after all. Uh, Gordon is able to find his father's ring and there's like you said Nico is reminded of the family motto while we breathe we shall defend next Jim makes a decision to go see Barnes after his trip and uh, asks to rejoin the force Barnes reluctantly agrees that the GCTPD needs Gordon on their side I was actually waiting for Tetch to add Alice's blood into Gotham's water system or something. If he wanted to make Gotham a mad city, why only target the leaders? Who pulls his dead sister out of the morgue only to hang her upside down and drain her blood? Even though Jarvis and friends are now locked up in Arkham, I don't think that's the last we'll be seeing of him. He's not done yet, at least I hope not. Moving on, the investigative journalist that she is, it only took Valerie Vale all about two seconds to see through Gordon's lingering feelings for Lee. Considering how predictable that particular twist was in last week's episode, at least the show had the means to have all the storyline's major players minus Ted see right through it. The show is never at its best when it goes all soap opera mode, like the whole Gordon, Valerie Lee, Mario love rectangle. So this week, the writers wisely kept that aspect of the storyline on the brink. That is, until Gordon, much like Princess Peach, was rescued by Mario. At the hospital, Mario is furious that Gordon told Jervis to shoot Lee, but Lee, however, is in the same frame of mind as Valerie and believes that he did it actually to save her. When Gordon arrives, Lee is surprised to see him at GCPD headquarters. Despite being told not to go after Jarvis, Lee says that that has never stopped Gordon before. He surprised Lee again by denying that he was trying to save her from being shot. Well, why continue to deny the fact that Gordon is still totally crazy about Lee? I wasn't a huge fan of the whole love rectangle, as you put it, Steve. So I was glad it was such a minor part of the episode. So to answer your question, I think Gordon lied to Lee telling her that he didn't lie to or that he really wanted to save Valerie was because he wanted to give Lee a chance to move on to be happy and not worry about him still carrying a torch for her. But he should know better and know that Lee knows him too well and would see right through his deception. Hopefully now that this episode seemingly took care of much of the fallout from last week's Sophie's Choice, we won't have to dwell on it too much going forward. Though knowing that it has not really been resolved, I imagine the whole Lee and Gordon romance still has some legs 
and will probably return in the future. Meanwhile, Penguin spent most of the morning and kept so worried sick about Nigma after failing to show up for the dinner that was planned. Instead, Nigma was with Isabella all night long morning about each other. When Nigma does arrive, he brings the news that he's fallen for Isabella. Of course, this isn't good news for Penguin, who was ready to confess his own love to Nigma. Just as suspected, Penguin resorted to dastardly tactics to put the kibosh on Nigma's newfound affection for Isabella. The Penguin-Nigma storyline is poised to be one of the most talked about of season 3 so far, and spending time with these two demented men has always been such a blast. So this week, we got a significant glimpse into their twisted psychosis as Penguin acts out like a jealous child. Enigma rationalizes to himself that his new love might offer his heart a second chance it yearns for. The latter part in particular feels out of character given how Enigma declared that he was free without love holding him back this season. Now that Isabella has all too readily accepted the fact that Enigma has a history of murdering his girlfriends, these two are apparently ready to continue getting to know each other. Her decision to so quickly brush this under the rug feels suspiciously convenient. Either the writers have a clever twist in the works to make sense of it, or they simply drop the ball this week. In any case, expect to see Penguin take his anti-Isabella campaign to the next level in the weeks of his. His spilling the beans scene with Isabella was pure Penguin, though. I wanted to see more of that, please. I'm not quite sure how I feel about Isabella. She's definitely one strange chick. And how odd is it that she is so accepting of Nigma's past? Even more odd was that Nigma felt the need to tell her about his past. Why divulge any or all of that information? Yeah, love, it'll make you do stupid things. I think Nigma is finding that despite rationally knowing that not being encumbered by love is better for him, allows him to be more free, he can't help himself with this second chance that Isabella presents. He was so infatuated with Kristen, and the similarities between her and Isabella are causing him to throw caution into the wind and pursue her fully. I imagine that the writers must have something up their sleeves with her looking exactly like Kringle. Possibly even a Clayface-like situation or possibly a clone like Five or maybe even something even more twisted that we haven't even thought of yet. I hope so anyway because I would be really disappointed if she is just a normal person who's got a little bit of weirdness to her. I think that would be a misstep on the writer's part. So I'm really hoping it's something interesting and that there's a reason that she targeted Nigma and and that'll be interesting to see that unfold if that's the case. If it was a clay face situation, that would be so cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How adorable were Bruce and Selena during the episode? I love that he was making dinner for Selena, and I'm glad she finally showed up, even though she was really late. Their little romance is officially off and running, but I hope they have more to do than just being all googly-eyed with each other. At least young Master Wayne makes an appearance this episode. However, as he was completely absent from the previous episode. In their pair of scenes we do get, Bruce is preparing a meal for a dinner date with Selena at Wayne Manor. Though it's unclear if this is their first real date or if they've been going out for a couple of weeks at this point. The writers really should have clarified this and why Bruce, as one of the richest people in Gotham, wasn't invited to the founder's dinner in the first place. Yeah, this had a very first date sort of feel to me, and that makes a lot of sense because when you have as much money as Bruce Wayne has, making a meal himself shows that it was important to him. Spending even a lot of money on a fancy dinner is almost nothing to a billionaire, but taking the time to make the meal with his own hands, his own effort, that showed that it was a special night to him and why he was so hurt by her not showing up until really, really late. And so 
I, I think it was, it felt very much like a first date to me. Now, as for why Bruce was not invited to the founder's dinner, I wonder if he was and decided not to go or if he was excluded because he's not of age yet and it was a night of drinking and more adult entertainment that wouldn't have been appropriate for Bruce. But eventually when he becomes of age or, or you know, grows up a little bit, they will start inviting him to that. Although he's been invited to quite a few things that are probably not age appropriate just because of his wealth. So maybe that doesn't hold water. But either way, he was not there. And I wonder why they didn't really show Selena sneaking around this that uh, mansion and stealing from the uber rich to explain her absence from showing up for dinner with Bruce. I, I think that might have been a little bit of a misstep, but maybe it was because Selena was off doing something else. And we'll find out about that in the future. I, d- I just don't know. Well, regardless, the romance between these two has been incredibly sweet and endearing so far. Bruce cooking a meal for his date and their mutual admission that it feels weird to be seeing each other romantically. So very true to both characters. Of course, it's only a matter of time before their connection is compromised by Selena's less than pristine values. Most likely this will happen when Ivy announces her return as Selena would likely defend her friend's criminal actions. Until then, the two teams are doing an excellent job capturing the chemistry between the two on-again, off-again lovers in the comics. Now, time again for some uh, quick-fire pointers that I saw during the episode and didn't include in our discussion. All right, let's start with in this hallucination. Gordon sees Barbara in a sexy nurse's outfit while saving him. She points out that Gordon is the one in control, and he has her changed into a nurse's costume. I actually found that kind of funny. Okay. Bruce makes dinner for Selena, only to have her show up late, but they make up when Selena admits that their relationship is weird for her just as well. Uh, wasn't it a little weird that Isabella made a Piper doll chain of her enigma? Yeah, that that was definitely weird. I, I hope it's actually explained and not a, just a throwaway moment with her and Penguin when she catches, or Penguin catches that on her desk. I hope it's actually explained because that might t- tie into my little theory that there's something more complex going yeah. on with her. It was nice knowing you, Valerie Vale. I'm guessing now that she's dumb Jim, we won't be seeing much more of her anymore. Too bad, I kind of liked her. Why was there such a major focus on the Band-Aid on Mario's neck? Yeah, you know, I'm going to jump in on that one because I think this made me think that Tetch infected him when Mario tried to stop the, not last episode, when he tried to be the hero and stop Tetch from taking them prisoner and they took him in the back room. I, I think the effects won't be seen or haven't yet begun to manifest, much like it took Barnes a few hours or days for his effects to begin to manifest when he was infected with Alice's blood. So that would be my guess as to why they focused in on that Band-Aid was that he had been infected. I was very surprised to see Bullock acting so mean towards Jim in the morgue. Um, I hope he's going to be somewhat excited that Jim is returning to the GCPD, though. Yeah, don't you feel like it was sort of tough love from Bullock to get Jim to snap out of whatever funk he was in and get his life back together? He wanted to shock him out of it and return to normal so the two of them could get back together working together, which is exactly what I'm looking forward to next week is finally Bullock and Gordon back to being partners. Mario is definitely not going to be a happy camper once he finds Al Gordon is back at the GCPD. Nope, you're right about that. And last one, the Court of Owls made an appearance. One member of the Court of Owls seems to have a ring that looks suspicious like the one Gordon's father wore. What do they have planned for Penguin 
And who is the Shadow Man? Yeah, that ring was exactly like the one they found that belonged to his father. Does that imply that his father is still alive and the head of the Court of Owls? Probably not, but that's definitely what they were implying in that last scene or making us want to speculate. What do they have planned for Penguin? I think they plan to manipulate him into their cause, use him as a puppet mayor that will help ensure their continued running of Gotham from the shadows. How that works is the beauty of watching the rest of this season to see the writers bring it all together for us. And basically, I have no idea how they'll actually make it all work. But I am excited because it means more great scenes from Robin Lord Taylor as Penguin. And that's been really good stuff throughout the entire series. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. All right. I think that's enough for Gotham this week. Steve, thanks for joining me once again. Now we're going to bring Michael in for the rest of the episode as we discuss the Arrowverse series and kick those off with Supergirl with the fourth episode of the second season entitled Survivors. Thrilled to have found another Martian, Hank is determined to get to know him again better. Kara and Alex take notice of an alien fight club run by Roulette while investigating an unregistered alien's murder. And Supergirl starts training Monel, whom she has taken under her wing. Well, in what was the least shocking twist that we both saw coming, this week's episode of Supergirl revealed that McGann, or Miss Martian, was indeed a white Martian. While that reveal was not surprising for any of us that are fans of the comics, Young Justice, or have ever heard of Miss Martian before, how we got there was actually a decent story. The story McGann told John about a white Martian that broke ranks and helped her escape was heartbreaking if you knew she was talking about herself being the white Martian that broke ranks and why she was punishing herself for not doing more or actually doing what she said the white Martian did for her in the story because we know it was what she wished she had done for others but was too afraid and only wanted to get herself away from it. How they handle John finding out about her and what and who she really is will be interesting because they've handled it differently in a few different tellings of the story before. Michael, what did you think of McGann's story, her punishing herself in the ring, her refusal to kill, and where and how do you think her White Martian story is going to go in this telling? Well, I'm with you, Nico. I think it was very obvious from the beginning that McGann was actually a White Martian, and her story solidified that fact for us DC Comics fans almost immediately. I mean, I enjoyed the way her and John's story in this episode was handled, and the concept of her fighting almost as a punishment for herself and for her and her people's actions, like you kind of mentioned, was very well done and made a lot of sense to me. Her refusal to kill was also a nice touch based on the previous fact of her race, as we just mentioned. As for how her white Martian arc play out, I'm assuming John will be really hurt at first finding out that she's not actually a green Martian, but will probably slowly come around to understanding McGann is truly seeking redemption, and I think he'll be very open and accepting to that once he gets over his initial anger and hateful reactions to her being a white Martian especially because we've encountered one on her before. Do you think he's going to try and take her into custody and maybe even actually take her into custody before eventually realizing that she is not like most white Martians and then he'll be able to get over that almost racist re- initial feeling that you were mentioning, you know, that, that that shock that will almost make him fall back on his his hate for the white Martians because of what they the genocide they caused on Mars and, and essentially ruined or destroyed the Martian culture. Do you think think that that's going to be the way it goes, that he'll 
he'll he'll actually bring her in or seek the DEO on her after he finds out? Or will he take a bead and actually try and get to know her or have got to know her and realize she's different before it gets that far? No, I think you're pro- you probably have a safe uh, theory going on right there. And I, and I think his biggest fear will be that she is trying to get close to him or be around him in order to kill him who is the last Green Martian. So that paranoia, that fear will probably, like you said, immediately have him take her into custody. And I'll probably take Kara or even Alex to talk him out of that. But I could also see McGann being okay with herself being locked up, at least for a little while, kind of serving it as a penance sort of deal. Kind of like Diggle and Arrow. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Now, Alex seems to have fallen hard for the detective. From finishing each other's sentences to awkwardly complimenting one another's undercover ensembles, the chemistry between these two was crazy. But in the end, Alex gets the maybe next time, oh yeah, here's my new girlfriend treatment, which was harsh to say the least. Uh, It appears that Supergirl is getting the traditional CW romance treatment with Alex and Maggie looking like they were heading towards a romance only to get kicked down the road by last week's new date becoming a serious relationship. I'm not surprised with that, with how quickly things were moving. Even Kara noticed with her sideways glances as she was literally in the middle of their flirting at the crime scene that something had to pump the brakes on their budding interest in each other. But you have to feel for Alex with how that went down. The CW traditionally makes its money on sexual tension and as the great Joss Whedon said many times TV often does not work anymore when the love interests get together that's why he was notorious for breaking them apart or killing one of the love interests off to continue to push the story and drama forward I feel like the Mon El and Kara story will probably go the same way as is it is due for a few more episodes of them growing close before they have to throw some sort of monkey wrench into the story as well so that it does not get too far down the path towards a full-blown romance. Michael, what are your thoughts on the CW-style romantic entanglements this season on Supergirl? Where do you see them going, and how soon before we get a new triangle? The CW loves its love triangles. Ugh, yeah. Well, we know that with them possibly becoming an item, that Jimmy will probably enter into that triangle soon enough, and I think that as we see Manel and Kara develop, we will see Kara begin to really want that relationship with James once again, possibly even ending it with Manel at some point in order to pursue Jimmy who at that point as with normal CW style may even be with someone else by then bringing about a whole new triangle and kind of killing Kara's other relationship Yep. Alex and Maggie on the other hand I can see working for a while until one of them or possibly both of them refuses to leave work at home I don't know if that's something you were thinking at all but that was kind of my thought going into it so ultimately I don't think that will last either either way I'm kind of sick of the CW style love triangles and as you put it and I always thought that season one was so strong largely because it didn't rely on those triangles to tell their story and they were really B or C plots unlike Arrow season 3 or 4 where the Elicity story was essentially the A plot all the time my fear is that Supergirl will rely too heavily on relationship drama and not focus enough on Kara being Supergirl on her job Alex working at the, at the DEO or even just hunting down cats so that's that's my life. yeah I know season 1 was so great because it was different from what we were suffering through on Arrow okay <laughs> maybe it was only Dan and I that were truly suffering through it 
it, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And now I'm worried that this series could fall victim to a similar emphasis on romantic entanglements and not on the truly important Supergirl and Kara relationships that worked so well last season. Granted, the loss of Cat Grant takes one of those important relationships off the table, but there is still the sister aspect that I loved last season that they are completely ignoring this season for no apparent reason. Kara and Wynn barely talk to each other, yeah. and we've seen one or two scenes with Kara and Jimmy interacting at all, and only one uh, was a quality friendship scene. That is where this show made its name last season, and that is where I hope the focus turns back to and not too much focus on new romantic relationships for everyone. It's like we have to give everyone a relationship to keep pushing the story forward. No, we we don't. Right. We, we need to focus on the relationships that we're working. Exactly. I was also going to say, it feels like also these characters, these new characters who are bringing in these relationships are just simply placeholders taking the place of characters like Maxwell Lord or even Lucy Lane for those CW romances. And that's about it. Yeah, that's a great point. It is. Speaking of Monel, I heard that he'll be out on the town next week in a pseudo Clark Kent disguise, a pair of glasses. What do you think of that? Is he going to be out with Kara? And if so, why does he need a disguise? Also, what happens if she needs to become Supergirl? Is he going to just sit by and watch or jump in and help? And will that be the reason that he now later needs a disguise? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm all right with it. I think you're right. He doesn't really need a disguise, but if he's going to be protecting humanity, then him actually having one makes some sort of sense. I think it has to do too with Kara wanting Mon to essentially be Kal-El under her wing. So she's largely being influenced by Superman in that regard because, as she said, it was either this episode or the last episode, she never actually was able to take care of Kal-El the way she was supposed to. And now Mon-El is her second chance. In the comics, when Mon-El was Metropolis's defender while Superman was off-world, he took the identity of John Kent uh, as Superman's father Jonathan had just passed away. And as John John Kent. He joined the anti-metahuman slash alien task force under Jim Harper's guardian and actually didn't wear glasses. I would love to see that here on Supergirl, but it seems as if he'll be sticking with the eyewear at least for a little while. Now, the first rule of Alien Fight Club is don't piss off the Kryptonians. <laughs> I like the idea of an alien fight club as a story arc, but I thought Roulette's appearance on this week's episode was massively underwhelming. Maybe with the casting of genre star Dykin Lockman, I thought it was going to be a larger role or more important character, and maybe it still will be in the future episode, but it really could have been anyone with how little importance Roulette actually played in this week's story. Besides her being released from custody because of her political connections and my thoughts that Lena Luther had something to do with this with her release. It seemed like almost a throwaway role. Michael, were you expecting more from Roulette with such a massive genre star being cast in the role? And did I miss some important part of her story or reason why they got someone like Dyke and Lachman to play the character with what we saw in the actual episode? And what is Roulette's importance to the overall story of both Supergirl, alien rights and registration, and the comics in general? What are your thoughts on the Alien Fight Club story as a plot device? Yeah, I really enjoyed the Alien Fight Club idea. And I thought it was executed nicely. In the comics, Roulette runs an underground fighting ring that isn't just for aliens necessarily, but for anyone in the superpower community of both heroes and villains. She was never, or she never really had a personal connection with Supergirl, but she also has appeared on the CW before in Smallville season nine in the episode also entitled Roulette when she was hired to harass all queen. I definitely recommend the Justice League Unlimited episode, The Cat and the Canary, for more on her. That being said, I didn't necessarily feel underwhelmed by her performance, especially since I think we will see this character again. So I had no problem with Deacon Lock 
Murdoch and playing uh, the character. I thought she was really let down to T. Okay, okay, good to know. I was just underwhelmed by the limited screen time, I think. And mm. I think you're correct that this will be rectified if, rather, when she returns. So I think that was just what threw me off on this, was I was expecting more, getting an actress that's so recognizable. Yeah. But moving on, I like the idea of Kara being a reporter and following in Clark's footsteps as both a superhero and one who fights for the truth in his cover job or secret identity. But Clark grew up and went to school. Essentially, he studied how to be a journalist. He worked his way up from the bottom to one of the top reporters in Metropolis. It seems that this series wants to allow Kara to skip a lot of those steps and just be a reporter without any of the learning or effort. And they seem to be making Snapper the bad guy in all of this, when in reality, he is probably being reasonable with her lack of skill. All of his complaints about her writing and articles are legit and valid. She submits an article not in the AP style and without sources, and he's the bad guy for requiring the absolute basics of journalism in his stories? And how about not using Supergirl as a source? Come on. Michael, again, am I taking crazy pills or something? What's the deal? Are we supposed to dislike Snapper for expecting the very minimal and most basic aspects of journalism from Kara? Am I missing something with this story arc? It would be one thing if if he were being unreasonable or sexist or just didn't like her and was making her life a, a living hell. But that's not the case. What am I missing? You know, I, I don't know, Nico. I'm, I'm kind of feeling that same way. With all of Cat Grant's comments about entitled millennials last season, I'm really shocked that this is the route that they're going and Kara isn't understanding any of that or taking any of that to heart. I mean, if Kara is serious about becoming a journalist, then she needs to learn the basic rules and apply them, period. I don't care if James has to teach her, if Clark has to teach her, if Lois has to guest star and teach her, whomever, I don't care. But she needs to understand that all of that, or she can just go in and act like she owns the place just because Cat Grant says she has the job. I don't see Snapper as a bad guy here at all and I actually like that he's pushing Kara the way that he does I think it's going to help her in the long run and I think eventually she'll realize that and it'll also help her rise above the challenges she's facing and figure out a solution which I think is great that was somewhat Kat's role last season and I think Snapper's approach is working as well I just think that Kara is so flustered by it because she doesn't know him like she did Kat Grant but and I think us as the audience are kind of seeing some of that frustration and are, we're kind of being told to feel that way because that's how Kara's feeling but I don't I, I agree with you I bet feeling the same way you have as well. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one having an issue with the whole Kara being a journalist story arc and all of that. I wish we had not lost Cat Grant, of course, but the combination of Jimmy Olsen in her job and Snapper Car pushing Kara could provide much of the support, guidance, and leadership and a return to reality that Cat brought for Kara last season. It won't be the same, but could be very effective if done correctly. Well, anyway, is there anything I missed this week that we need to cover before we move on to Flash? I don't think so, but I do want to say I'm really excited for next week because it looks like it's going to be a Jimmy-centered episode and because we haven't really seen a whole lot of him this season, I'm I'm anxious to get back to those core characters like we mentioned earlier that made Supergirl great in the beginning. Is this going to be where he first comes up with the idea of the Guardian, do you think? Or is that maybe just a stepping stone towards that? From what I saw in the trailer, it looks like maybe, but I don't know for okay. sure. Yeah, I'm not, I don't usually watch the trailers because I don't want it to affect what my thoughts are on the next week, you know, on, on my yeah. theories and things like that. So I usually just let them go and maybe after we record it. But sometimes I kind of miss out because I don't know what's coming. <laughs> All right. With that, I think it's time we do actually move on to The Flash. And we're going to talk about the fifth episode of the third season entitled Monster. My name is Barry Allen. I am the fastest man alive. 
Caitlin seeks out her mother, Carla, looking for help dealing with her cold powers and to try and resolve things between them. Meanwhile, the rest of the team deals with a monster on a rampage through Central City, and Cisco realizes that HR isn't what he claims. Again, this week's Flash title had a bit of a double meaning for me. The obvious correlation with this week's holographic monster, but I also felt it dealt with the burgeoning monster within my lovely Caitlin, who almost lost control and gave in to that monster twice in this episode. We also saw that Julian was struggling with a monster of his own and how he almost lost his battle with his fear as well. I want to begin with Caitlin. After what happened at the end of the episode last week, she sought out her mother, a world-renowned scientist, for help and emotional support. Initially, she did not get either from her mother, but after a few frosty exchanges, the coolness between them began to melt, all puns intended. But seriously, I really enjoyed this story arc this week. The fact that Caitlin's mother did not even know she had been married and had, had too lost her husband was heartbreaking, but also I think was the moment for her mother, Carla, that broke down that barrier that had been built up after Caitlin's father had died. We had learned a brief bit about Caitlin's history and backstory over the early part of this series, but I loved diving into more of it here. When she later loses control when attacked by Dr. Tannhauser's assistant in a laughable, inconsistent transition from seemingly good guy to one-dimensional bad guy in a single <laughs> scene, I had to laugh at how quick that was. Yeah, uh, But it was that connection between the two doctors, the mother and daughter, that ultimately brought Caitlin back from the brink. The comment that her mother made, she had not raised a killer, was enough to shock Caitlin back to herself. I had said that I hoped that we might see Caitlin harness these powers and use them for good. But with that scene and the last one of the episode, that doesn't really seem possible. Michael, what do you think? Is a Frost hero character off the table now? And what did you think of the Caitlin backstory in these two? two scenes where her eyes changed and she nearly lost control of the frost monster within. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily off the table, Nico, and I think you'll be glad to hear that. But I also think that there are times where characters go dark and never come back. Lex Luthor on Smallville and Katrina, Crane on Sleepy Hollow immediately come to mind. But then there are other characters like Willow from Buffy who have a flash of evil or darkness come upon them, only to be brought back by the ones who love them most. And I could definitely see Caitlin losing control to Killer Frost and having to be talked down by Cisco in a similar manner that Dark Willow was by Xander at the end of Buffy Seed 6. Spoiler alert for that. Granted, I could see that scene going both ways, one with her releasing her dark side and maybe the other embracing it. Uh, I liked her arc this week and I enjoyed learning more about who Caitlyn is and where she comes from because that's something that always fascinates me about people, specifically characters in television. But my favorite parts were definitely her icy transformations and I'm looking forward to more of that as time goes on. I also really liked that we got confirmation that in this timeline, this new post-Flashpoint timeline, Ronnie still did die and she still did suffer that loss and they still did get married and that for the most part continuity has remained intact when it comes to Caitlin's story. Yeah, I, I love that idea, Michael, that you mentioned that we could indeed see Caitlin fall to her dark side to only be brought by Cisco, or also potentially forever will dominate her destiny, as Yoda would say. I would prefer her being saved and brought back, but you've twice now made very convincing arguments for it being a better story to see her go dark. So while it would hurt my heart for sure, I could intellectually enjoy it possibly even more than if she stayed as the Caitlyn I loved. So that's, that's good analysis on your part, because I think you're absolutely right on that. Now, I was super 
excited when I heard that Tom Felton was joining the cast this season of Flash. But I have to say that I had been underwhelmed to this point in his portrayal of Julian. That changed in a big way this week as I thought Tom gave an amazing performance as his entire story took a turn in this week's episode. Maybe it was that we, like Barry, didn't know anything about him before this week's episodes besides the fact that Barry hated working with him. Getting to know his backstory, where he came from, and why he wanted to be the best scientist he could be to prove to his family that his dreams and wants mattered was brilliantly done. It turns out that Julian's fierce dedication to the rules and his hatred of Barry's disregard for them is because he so badly wants to be a metahuman himself. He wants power so he can change the world and finds it pathetic when metahumans use their extraordinary powers for things like robbing banks. Also, that massive chip on his shoulder comes from his wealthy British family, which prides itself on tradition, and Julian never felt like he could fit in. Now, he and Barry may never be best friends, and they might not even like each other going forward, but this week's episode humbled both of them, and I think made it so that these two will actually find a way to coexist. I hope that they will become friendly, if not eventually actually become friends. But I also like the idea of them having a bit of a professional rivalry to keep them both on their toes. Michael, what did you think of this week's Julian story? And where do you see his story or his and Barry's story going in the future episodes? Could he eventually be a member of Team Flash or not? Yeah, I was very surprised by how much I actually liked Julian this week. I, You know, when he first appeared, I was very vocal about not really caring for the character, but I really liked him this week. And I thought that it was a very good twist on the Julian that we've seen up until now. I also hope that he and Barry do become friends. They don't need to be best friends or anything like that, Nico, but I really hope that they, you know, at least have some sort of um, friendship or companionship or even just partnership at work. And I definitely think that they're on their way to that based on how this episode ended. I'm not sure if he could ever become a member of Team Flash, though. I could see it if Caitlin turned into Killer Frost and the team needed someone to fill her shoes. And I think eventually Julian will learn either by his own investigation or by very, very revealing himself to him that he is the Flash. But only time will tell on that one. But it did just occur to me that because of Julian's, you know, obsession with the rules and all that and his hatred towards Barry because of metahumans, because he wants to secretly be a metahuman, is it possible, do you think, that alchemy could come to him and give him abilities and he could end up fighting Team Flash? That is a brilliant idea. And I I like I like that a lot. And I think if they're going to go the route where Julian learns of Barry's existence as the Flash then or his his true identity as the Flash, I do think that him being initially an an enemy and and alchemy is a great way to make that happen would be a great way to progress it. And then eventually, while maybe not joining Team Flash, like you said, he would be aware of it and would be on Barry's side, even if he's not actively on the team and helping he would be in on the secret and uh, would help him facilitate him working at the central city police department and not continually being harping on him for being late or not there he'd help cover for him in a sense and so in that that way i think it could definitely go and i i think it'll be interesting to see how julian handles the the revelation or discovery of the identity of the flash you're probably right about him not being a member of team flash unless there was that sudden vacancy because let's be honest star labs is getting a little crowded for a secret layer. Yeah. Everybody's there all the time. It's not so secret when everybody's going there. No. <laughs> and everybody can just walk in, you know? It doesn't still doesn't seem to be a um, security system in place. Right. Uh, but anyway. They need to repurpose Gideon. 
Yeah, exactly. They need to bring her out of the time vault and use her. I don't know about you, Michael, but I was super disappointed in the whole poser Harrison Wells revelation this week. They made it seem like he was plotting against them. And I'm glad it's not that again with this Wells. But the whole being an idea man and writing a novel about his exploits with the Flash, uh, I don't know. It seemed half-baked and just plain ridiculous. I was not a fan. And it has me yearning for them to send him packing and get Harry back or another Earth's Harrison Wells. Uh, what about you, Michael? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think to use your words, HR is a little half-baked in and of himself. But, you know, it's definitely weird. I'll give you that. And I do miss Harry and wish he were uh, the Wells still around. But I'm willing to give HR a chance just for the sake of Tom Cavanaugh, who played the part masterfully, regardless if I liked him or not. Uh, is this plan ridiculous? Yeah, absolutely. But on some level, so is Thawne's about wanting to become the Flash or Zoom playing both the hero and the villain on Earth 2. Or even Vandal Savage, three-time period time bomb on last season's finale of The Legends of Tomorrow. You know, we've mentioned this before, Nico, but the Flash, the Barry Allen Flash specifically, was born out of the Silver Age of comics, whereas the modern Green Arrow that Arrow is based off of was born out of the Bronze Age. Most of the Arrowverse shows, in fact, take from the wacky and stranger ideas of Silver Age comics because most of their heroes, villains, and arcs originally came from there. And with Supergirl a close second, the Flash does this the most. His HR is playing very weird. Yeah, totally. But I guarantee it probably could have been weirder. Yeah, fair enough, Michael. Fair enough. And how great is it that Barry is crashing with Cisco. Considering how this season started out, I would have never predicted this roommate situation, but it is great to see that their friendship is on the men and they are good enough with each other that Cisco would let him crash on the couch. Don't get me wrong, I'm super happy that Cisco and Barry are buds again, but was this too fast? It's only been a matter of a few weeks and Cisco was damn near hating Barry when we first got to this timeline. Michael, too quick or a good thing? I Definitely a good thing. I mean, we have so much tension between Barry and Julian, HR and Cisco, Wally and the Speed Force and Caitlin and herself that adding Barry and Cisco drama to the mix kind of like we talked about with Joe and Iris would be too much and would just turn the show into a soap opera which I definitely think we don't want. I'm okay with this and I think it's largely because this Barry-Cisco dynamic has always been one of my favorite things on the show so I'm, I'm, I think it's definitely a good thing. Yeah, I, I too am glad things are on the men for these two as well. Now, the holographic monster and it being controlled by a kid being bullied at school was great story for Julian's story arc but it felt like they just wrapped it all up in a few seconds at the end of the episode without really tackling the whole bullying topic they attempted to raise and felt like there might have been more to that Joe and the kid at the end scene that ended up on the cutting room floor. Michael, did it feel like the story got rushed or trimmed to fit in, in with all the rest of the story this week? Or were you fine with what we got? The Flash series seems to be tackling some heavy issues this season with domestic violence, child abuse, drug abuse, bullying. But more often than not, they seem to be tackling tough issues, but not quite hitting the mark. Should they keep trying or stick to telling more comic book stories? You know, I was actually okay with how it turned out. I thought Joe's moment with the kid worked really well, and I didn't at all feel like I wanted more, or even got cheated by Flash for not bringing full attention to the issue. I think that if they were to spend more time on it, they would risk turning into a PSA, and that's just not going to fly with me. A script writing professor always says that we need to show and not tell, and that along with that, our script should always have something of a message, uh, but without being preachy about I thought this week's episode of The Flash was spot on with its message and its execution. Could more have been said? Yes, of course. But I think if you look at Cis or Caitlin and her mom, Cisco and HR, or even Barry and Julian, you can see the bullying theme run through those relationships as well, whether it's through immediate lack of trust, uh, coldness towards your family, or constant belittling of your cryblant partner. I saw the theme route and I thought it made a lot of sense. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that, Michael. Dan harped on me all the time as well that we need to focus on what 
they show us because they should be showing, not telling us what is important. That's why I'm the scientist and you and Dan are the screenwriters. But, you know, I I sometimes fall prey to I'm a big reader. And in a novel, they tell you everything you need right. to know, yep. you know, and, and you can get into the minds and stuff. I love television and film and it is a visual media. And so they should be showing you and not telling you like your your professor is telling you to do in your own scripts. And that's going to make your writing much better. So I absolutely agree with you that I was probably just expecting more because I wasn't focusing on what they were showing me in the other arcs. And you're absolutely right. They did tie it all together. And now that you pointed that out, it makes a lot more sense and doesn't get too preachy, which you're absolutely right. It would have felt like if they'd harped on it too much. Let's move on to next week. This time I actually did see some previews. So I have to ask, is Wally finally getting powers? That could be great. Is Dr. Alchemy behind it? Maybe not so great. And what do you think? Anything else I missed that you want to discuss about this week's episode before? Nope. I just wish that Wally wasn't so stupid sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Best comment ever. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. All right. With that, I think it's about time to move into Arrow with the fifth episode of the fifth season entitled Human Target. When Church learns who Green Arrow really is, Oliver brings in a man to impersonate him while he tries to figure out what Church is up to. In the past, Oliver learns that passing the Bratva test doesn't mean that every member accepts him. This week's Arrow picks up where last week's went left off, with Team Arrow looking for Renee, who's been captured by Tobias Church. I enjoyed watching Renee in this episode, probably for the first time since Season 5 started. Nico, you know that Wild Dog has kind of annoyed me this whole episode, and I think, or this whole season, I should say, and I think he has to you as well, and that's largely because he seems to make the exact same mistake every single episode. However, this week, Renee was humbled. He was beaten to a bloody pulp, and after being saved by Oliver, he reveals that he made the biggest mistake he's ever made by revealing that he gave up the Green Arrow's secret identity as Oliver Queen. Wild Dog has made a lot of mistakes, and I know I've been hard on him because of it, but this week, I actually can excuse this offense. Not because it was okay, but because of the circumstances surrounding it and the way that Renee has decided to use Wild Dog as his part to redemption. Kind of like Diggle with Spartan. Nico, what were your thoughts on Wild Dog this week, and do you think Renee has learned his lesson? about challenging Oliver's authority as team leader. Michael, I agree with you. Up to this point, we both have made some comments to the effect that the Wild Dog character has really annoyed us because he was making the same mistake every week, like you mentioned. He'd rush in, not be a team player, and blow the whole mission. Last week, he was actually taken hostage, not because he screwed up, but because he actually was a good team member and ensured the rest of his team got out safe. Again, this week, he made a major mistake, as you mentioned, by revealing Oliver's secret identity to church. But this time, we understood that this was not because of him being reckless, immature, or impatient. It was because he was beaten to within an inch of his life and couldn't take any more. In spy movies and shows, the CIA tells its operatives that they need to resist torture and not break for 72 hours. Give them 72 hours to get rescued. And we can guess that Rene held out as long as he could, and thus we don't fault him. I also think the way it changed his character will greatly improve him going forward, and since Church was killed at the end of the episode, and we assume he didn't pass that information along to too many of his colleagues or henchmen, Oliver's secret is probably pretty safe from all except maybe the guy Church hired to kill Oliver. So in that sense, the effect is not going to be long reaching for it, even if the results of it for the wild dog character are. So I think it's a, it was a very good mess up for Renee this week. I completely agree. And I think you're spot on with the secret probably being safe, with the exception of maybe 
maybe a few colleagues, and obviously Prometheus, whether or not he knew already, which I think we both think he does. Yep. So that doesn't make a difference one way or another, but I, I agree. Something we wanted to see all season long, really since the end of last season, when Oliver was sworn in as mayor, was Oliver engaging in politics. Although Christopher Chance was posing as Ollie for part of this week's episode, it was still awesome to see Oliver take on his political rivals, his enemies in the press, and actually work on saving Star City during the day. I loved all of this, and I can't wait to see more of it going forward. Nico, I know we don't want Arrow to turn into a political drama. Believe me, we do not. But I want to see Oliver save his city for once, not just as Green Arrow. Did you like the politics this week in, in the episode? Oliver blackmailing other politicians and even working to get the reporter on his side were both great, even if Chance, who we'll talk about in a minute, was posing as Starling's favorite mayor for part of the time. Yeah, I did enjoy the politics of this week's episode and agree that we need to see Oliver working on both fronts to fix the city. Stopping the crime can only take Star City so far. Cleaning up the political climate, the corrupt police force, and fixing the many broken aspects of daily life in Star City is a job for the mayor, not the Green Arrow. So I hope we get to see much more of Oliver doing good things as the mayor and, of course, as the Green Arrow. Yeah, no, I'm with you 100%. And what did you think that reporter is up to? I mean, does she work for Prometheus, the Bratva? What are your thoughts on it? You know, that's really caught me off guard when she found out about Oliver's past in Russia in the closing scenes of the episode. The most likely and believable story would be that she is working for Prometheus to attack Oliver in his Oliver Queen side of his life while or when Prometheus begins to attack the Green Arrow as a coordinated two-pronged attack on both sides of Oliver's life. Much like we said we want to see Oliver working in both sides, I think we're going to see him attacked in both sides as well. Mm. The other option is that she is merely an overzealous reporter out to make her name any way she can, and what better way than to tear down Oliver Queen as the mayor? Although, if that were the case, how would she know about Christopher Chance and the human target? I know, you bring up a very good point, and we'll get to him in a second, but I, I really like your idea that she's working with Prometheus, so that makes a lot of sense to me, and I think this, that parallels a lot of season two with Isabel Rochef being a part of Oliver's Queen Consolidated board and working alongside Deathstroke in his Oliver Queen life while Deathstroke is taking him out in his green, or at that point, his arrow life. I, I think yep. that's a very, very good way to do it. And that worked so well in season two, especially at the end when it was revealed that she was working with him all along and she even joined the fight alongside him and his Mirakuru army. I thought that was a great way to do it. And I really hope that that's kind of what they do with this now that you mention it. Yep. You know, I really believe that the most underrated DC comic show out there <laughs> was a Fox show that aired a few years back called The Human Target. This show was based off of a comic book of the same name about a guy named Christopher Chance who took on the identity of other people in order to infiltrate organizations or protect someone under threat death. Like when Constantine was cancelled, I missed watching Chance on TV every week. But also like Constantine, Arrow has resurrected the character for a new audience, albeit with a different actor, and technically a different actor a little too. Chance did a great job at playing Oliver this week, and although I knew he was slated to be in this week's episode, especially since it was titled The Human Target, I wasn't sure when he was going to show up. It was a very pleasant surprise to find out that when Oliver faked his death that it was Chance in disguise, and this wasn't the only time this week Chance took on another identity, even appearing as a member of the Brafa in the flashbacks, which I thought were fantastic this week as well. Nico, what were your thoughts on Christopher Chance, aka the human target? Did you like his introduction to the reverse, and do you think that we could see more of him this season in both present and in the flashbacks? 
You know, Michael, Dan and I loved that Human Target series when it was on Fox and talked about it all the time. I really enjoyed Mark Valley and Chai McBride mm. in that series, but really the concept of the characters was equally as fascinating as the guys playing Christopher Chance and his business partner, Winston. This week was equally well incorporated into the Arrowverse, and like you mentioned, reminded me of last season's appearance of Constantine with how well it worked in the story. The fact that they also had Chance show up in the Bratva flashbacks could have felt too quick incidental, but tying it back to the present story arc and the reporter helped to give it purpose and a reason for Chance saving Oliver previously. Plus, it just added even more intrigue and interest for me with the, those flashbacks. So overall, I was a huge fan of Human Target's appearance this week, and I do hope it will be a part of the, the season going forward. I don't know if it actually will, but I hope so, because I, I like the Christopher Chance character. Yeah, I do too. Could you see him maybe um, being like a, a kind of recurring character in the flashbacks, like katana was in the season three flashbacks potentially yes but i kind of feel like his job was done in okay in the in the episode he he saved oliver by being the backup or the the guy there to to help him and make sure he didn't get into trouble or wasn't killed by wow. his brothers but I, I don't think we want him to be there too much because we want Oliver to be able to take care of himself. And, Fair enough. You know, and he 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 fell prey to this once, but he'll he won't again. You know, and, and so I don't think we need Chance in the back in the flashbacks to almost to keep Oliver the the hero of those stories. Yeah, no, I don't disagree there at all. Speaking of heroes, it's very good seeing Diggle back on the team this week. I'm very glad that he didn't go the Thea route and hang up his helmet. The last week, I think we both assumed that John would. Continue continue his role as Spartan, even explicitly saying it in the episode. So with Renee being a former soldier and Dig just recently leaving the armed forces, they seem to hit it off very well. And I appreciated Diggle's approach with Renee, knowing exactly what he's going through and how to handle him when debriefing. When the team went out into the field near the end, Mr. Terrific, Artemis, and Ragman were all in awe of Spark, the same way they would have been with Oliver when first seeing him in action. I thought this was very cool, and a small reminder that although these younger members of the team are well-trained and definitely feel ready, there's still nothing paired to Green Arrow, Spartan, and the rest of the old guard, as we mentioned last week. Nico, wasn't it good to see Diggle back into the fold this week as Spartan? And do you think he and Wild Dog can make a good team in the future? Absolutely, Michael. And I love that you pointed out the scene where Artemis said to Ragman and Terrific that Spartan was such a badass because Diggle's such a badass. Yes. David Ramsey is my second favorite actor currently on this series and only third overall on the series because I am such a Captain Jack Hartness fan. The way Diggle knew how to deal with Renee's debriefing and knew that he didn't need to lecture him or admonish him for what happened because Renee would do that to himself, but rather that a soft touch, a helping hand, and a revelation that Diggle had been through torture at the hands of his own brother about a year before was what Renee needed to trust him, to bond with him, and to open up and be willing to take part in the hippy-dippy meditation things that ultimately led to the needed intel being remembered. I'm glad Diggle is back, and I'm wondering if Thea slash Red Arrow might eventually join the team as well as the season goes forward after seeing how good it is for Diggle to be back on the team and 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 that sort of stuff if it maybe makes her start yearning to be a part of the team as well or if she's content with being part of Oliver's mayoral team instead. Also speaking of original team members returning, I really hope Arsenal makes his appearance soon as well. Nah, amen to that. <laughs> 
After Green Arrow defeated Church, which was an awesome fight, by the way. Again, I'm super impressed with the action sequences so far this season. The gang leader was being transported to his new prison when suddenly Prometheus attacks and kills all of the cops transporting Church. A lot like Deathstroke in the episode, at the, it was either the end or the beginning of the episode Deathstroke in season two. Church reveals to Prometheus that Green Arrow is Oliver Queen, but Prometheus, seeming not to care, kills him on the spot. Nico, I knew Church was going to die by the end of the season, most likely due to Prometheus. In fact, most definitely. But I was honestly shocked that he was killed so early after only five episodes. It seems as if Arrow is kicking into full gear of the Prometheus arc, but I can't help but wonder if this is the last we're going to see this season of the Criminal Underworld. I would like to see another gang leader rise up and have the new team Arrow take them on while Oliver is dealing with Prometheus. But honestly, I don't know where this is going to go. Nico, what do you think about Church's plan, his demise, and the future of Star City's Criminal Underworld? Yeah, I was definitely really disappointed with Church's master plan. Sure, it was ambitious to combine all the heads of the major crime families and gangs together to consolidate the drug business into a single enterprise, which also decreases the gang-on-gang violence and could have decreased some of the territorial violence across all five cities. But in the grand scheme of plans we've seen with Malcolm and Dark in the past seasons, I was not at all impressed with, with Church's plan, and that was why I wasn't all that surprised when they killed him at the end of the episode. But that that being said, I'm not sure if we're ready for Prometheus to make his move either. So what does that mean going forward? Apparently, Prometheus will be making or beginning his move on Oliver next week by killing a bunch of people from Oliver's past or people with links to Oliver's past somehow. More than likely, this will only be Prometheus's opening salvo and we will return to other story arcs and even the midseason finale dealing with the crossover and I believe the Legion of Doom before we'll get back to Prometheus. So Prometheus will probably take a back seat during all of that in a few weeks, and we'll get back to really being Prometheus going head to head with Oliver and uh, the Team Arrow after the midseason premiere. Do you think that we'll see another gang leader rise up and take power now that Church is gone? Someone maybe like seeing Brick again or even China White maybe? I think we may see some struggles between the heads of those gangs and families trying to claw back and get the, the territory they had before church united them and there might be some infighting which spills out onto the streets and becomes dangerous for the regular citizens of star city and that's where we'll see the team interacting with them and kind of cleaning some of that up preventing innocents from being swept up into the gang wars and things like that but i don't know that we're going to actually see a one of those heads of the the families or heads of the crime gangs actually step up and take the role of church or or even try to be the head of one of, you know, try and take on the Green Arrow directly. I think they're going to try and grab their power back, but ultimately won't try and go head to head with them. I think we're going to see the Legion of Doom and Prometheus are going to take those roles. Gotcha. That's kind of, I think that's kind of a bummer personally, but I also think that we need to, we need to be focusing on Prometheus and other, other villains, like you said, the Legion of Doom um, this season. I think we could get weekly versions where someone is trying to make a plan or trying to go, but never gets to the point where they're as powerful or even looking like they could become as powerful as Church was seemingly becoming. And I think we will still get week to week stories where there is maybe a villain of the week, but I don't think they're going to progress to the point where they become a a full blown gang leader or or even to, you know, that sort of power level. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite gang arcs on Arrow was was oddly enough in season three when Oliver was presumed dead and Brick kind of took over. I I uh-huh. loved those episodes and the Brick, character of Brick from the comic books was a huge 
crime lord who even had super strength. And I thought that would be a great way for Arrow to go at some point. Who knows? Maybe we'll see him again. Maybe we won't. But that would be neat either way. So finally, I want to take a second to talk about who Prometheus may be <laughs> once again. I know we've talked about this before. And I still want to hold to my Tommy Merlin theory, mostly because I want it to be true. But Adrian Chase actor John Segura was credited as a guest star this week, although he did not actually appear. Making me wonder if our joint theory about Adrian Chase being Prometheus may be true. When talking the premiere, you had mentioned that Adrian or even Oliver's Russian nemesis and Dolph Lundgren could be contenders. And, you know, I wasn't sold at first when you said that, but I had said that if it were Adrian, who we know is going to become a vigilante at some point, he would have to have at least two split personalities, one being vigilante and the other being Prometheus, much like Harvey Dent and Two-Face. And I remember we talked about that quite a bit of time. With Segura being credited in this week's episode, but our favorite DA not actually appearing, does this bring more merit to our theory that Arrow could be tackling split personalities with Prometheus this season? I, d- I think it does lend credence to our joint theory, and I'm glad that you gave a little bit of credit on that theory you came up with since I initiated it with my initial thoughts on Adrian, Adrian Chase being a possible Prometheus candidate, but I think it was pretty much you that came up with that really cool theory about the split personality, so I appreciate the joint theory <laughs> comment. Well, I mean, it was definitely <laughs> I think you it, said it first. Okay. Well, I think you hashed it out and, and made it into a full-blown theory that I definitely subscribe to, and I absolutely love the idea of a split personality hero and be, and villain being the same person but separate personalities. How cool would that be? If they actually go this route, it will be something so unique that I think it could be one of the greatest comic book stories I've ever seen come to live action. It was a good catch on your part noticing his credit in the episode. And unless they're toying with us just to suspect that Josh Zagara is playing Prometheus, it makes a lot of sense to me that that's the only explanation now. Oh man, how cool would it be that both both from a story standpoint, if this is true, and the fact that we called it in the freaking premiere. <laughs> That would be amazing as well. <laughs> that would definitely be setting a new record in podcast theory. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think I think there's definitely a lot of merit to it. I really I agree. I think it would be very, very cool and definitely a twist and would bring some new life to Arrow that, you know, we didn't necessarily think they would have again. So that being said, is there anything I missed this week, Nico, or should we move on to Legends? No, I think, I think we nailed everything that we need to talk about. I think it's time to go into Legends. All right. So we'll talk next about DC's Legends tomorrow with Season 2, Episode 4, Abominations. The Legends discover a time aberration in 1863 and must fight for survival during the Civil War with Confederate soldiers who have been turned into zombies. With the Civil War outcome hanging in the balance, Jax participates in a daring mission by going to a slave plantation with Amaya. Meanwhile, Sarah begins to feel the burden of the decision she has to make as the leader, and Ray struggles to find his purpose on the team. Wait, so this week we're in 1863, the height of the American Civil War. Because of a virus from the future, Confederate soldiers have become zombies. I enjoyed the zombie concept a lot this week, and I thought it was a nice way for the Legends to have to face various different trials and fears and work together to overcome them. So let's start with Jax this week, a character who I've always liked, but was probably one of the least necessary characters on this show other than his role with Stein as Firestorm. Having to go to the Civil War era, Jax encountered the black slave trade, and I want to specify that it was the black slave trade as there have been various races enslaved in the Americas over the past 200 years. As Jax and Vixen team up in order to infiltrate a southern plantation and find the plans the Union need in order to 
to win the war due to the original Union agent being killed by zombies. Vixen wants to help a woman being beaten by her owners, but Jax refuses on principle that they don't know what they could change in history. And originally, I was really happy that he had learned that because I expected him to go in half cock. That's not what happened, however, as Jax is later captured by the slave masters, and when Vixen arrives to save him, he actually decides to free all the slaves, kind of going back on what I originally thought was character development. And I've seen a trend on how all the Arrowverse shows have been dealing with social, political, and ethical issues lately, and this episode is by far no exception. And I like the overall episode a lot, but I had a little bit of issue with them changing history in regards to slavery. Not because I am pro-slavery, obviously, but because I think we've realized how dangerous it is based on Rip Hunter wanting to save his family, and, you know, the Hawks and all of that last season, how dangerous it is to change history. Nico, I know the CW can only show so much violence, racism, and sexism on shows like Legends of Tomorrow, but how did you feel about how this week's episode tackled the concept of slavery in America during the time of the Civil War, and did you like Jax's response to it? In a sense, Michael, I hate when time travel goes back in time and deals with issues of racism, sexism, and classism, because it can be difficult for us, the viewers, to not want our heroes to interfere, to apply our seemingly more enlightened current thoughts, although there's still a ton of work to be done on all of those fronts of equality. But our seemingly more enlightened current thoughts to the to the past. Of course, we want Jackson Vixen to save the female slave being whipped or free the slaves in the punishment shed. Yeah. The problem with the time travel aspect is that if you subscribe to an, a fixed timeline of time travel, which this show does not, but many do, then the Novikov self-consistency principle takes effect and any actions taken by the time travel were already part of the timeline and thus the future will not be affected by the actions of the time traveler and they are free to act in the past. But sometimes time fixes itself and the person dies anyway or is recaptured by the masters or any number of unforeseen consequences result in the same future outcome. However, the much more dangerous time travel stories use a dynamic timeline, which is what I believe Legends subscribes to currently, until otherwise confirmed to be a multiverse theory, which is what The Flash seems to be using. And since they're technically in the same universe, I'm not sure how that all works yet, but I think they're going to figure that out later. But I believe Legends right now is using the dynamic timeline, and that can result in altered events in the past having definitive impacts on the present and future, as we've seen in this series, and they are attempting to prevent with their entire mission. The reason I hate this type of story is because, as I said, we want our heroes to act a certain way, and more often than not, they have to abstain from action for fear of catastrophic effects to the timeline, and that leaves us feeling terrible for the actions or inaction of our heroes and for the feelings they must be feeling. Jax, as we saw, could not stand idly by any longer and decided he had to act. He could not stand the cruelty of slavery anymore. The problem is, this doesn't make him a hero. Well, it does and it doesn't. A Time Master would know that the atrocities that were occurring had occurred hundreds or thousands of years in the past, and that the only thing that they could change were the unnatural changes being made to history, like the zombies this week. Slavery is a terrible part of humanity's past, and let's be honest, it should never have happened. But the fact of the matter is, it it is history, and it did happen. To go back and create revisionist history might make us feel better about ourselves and how far we've come since those backwards people of the past. But doesn't it take away from the struggle and historical significance to change it in a fictional story like this? These are the thoughts and issues that I struggle with while I was watching the episode. In the moment, I was with Jackson his hatred for the slave owners. I don't know. It, it, it is such a difficult and dark part of our history that it's tough to capture everything in a single episode. But I did love the way they 
ended the episode with Jax returning to his roots by creating a scrimshaw carving, which he told Martin was something his mother taught him to do in his youth. And that makes me think that while maybe he didn't live up to his time master hero, he did learn an important lesson and he was able to deal with some of that hatred and and, and feeling of injustice that he had to go through. And and to do that, he kind of went back to his roots and, and like to make himself feel better, remembered something his mother had taught him as a child. So this was a tough episode for me, really, because yeah. of course I wanted him to, to stop slavery or to, to break free those slaves and save them. That's what a hero would do in that moment. But a time master would not. And that's the, the thing about this show. They're not heroes. They're legends. They're time masters. They're writing the wrongs done to history. They're not writing the wrongs of history. Mm. And so that's where I really feel like this show maybe has missed its own point sometimes in changing things of the past. We saw this last and when they went to that really racist and sexist era of the 50s in the small town and they were imposing 2010 ethics and social justice on the 1950s and that it, it didn't really work then and it, I don't think it worked this week. So it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dangerous and, and difficult thing to deal with in the past when you're dealing with such horrible atrocities that should have been rectified but weren't in history. Oh, I, I completely agree with Nico. I was struggling with the exact same things in this week's episode and I, I really can't add a whole lot because I think you said a lot of how I felt about it as well the biggest thing that I always ask myself whenever I watch episodes of shows that do this sort of thing and I, I did again feel the same way about that 1950s episode last season that you mentioned is you know if Legends of Tomorrow were made 50 years from now my question is if they would come to our era currently what are we missing that they would want to impose their time periods ethics on our time you know and, it, 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 and from that standpoint I look at that too and I, I don't know necessarily I could speculate I don't know but that mm -hmm. makes it hard me as well mm -hmm. absolutely so yeah I think I think you hit the nail right on the head and I think especially with that line you said you know they're here to write the wrongs made to history not the wrongs of history and I think there's a very fine line there that all time tra travel shows have to somewhat adhere to I don't think Continuum necessarily did that but Continuum you know they came from a far future to our present and we're writing present day wrongs as opposed to going into the past, things that in our minds have happened. Right. So I think there's obviously a difference there between a show like Continuum or Legends of Tomorrow and the way that they handled those situations. Another big plot this week is, and we've get, and we guessed it uh, last week, Nico, Ray not having his Adam suit and figuring out what his place on the team is. Right from the get-go, Sarah mentions him from the team, which I thought was kind of funny, but I think he more than proved his worth this episode in helping cure Mick of being a zombie and helping push Stein to overcome his fear of zombies. I was very glad that it seemed Ray is only going to be dealing with this concept for this episode, and I thought that it was an interesting decision on Mick's part to give Ray Captain Cold's cold gun. Nico, do you think they handled Ray well this week with it being the first week he doesn't have the Atom suit? And what did you think about Mick's decision to give him Cold's gun? And is he actually going to rebuild the Atom suit, or is he just going to stick with this weapon? Yeah, you know, I'm glad Ray was a man of action this week using his superpower, that big old brain of his, to solve the zombies problem with Mick in a fairly fun and humorous manner. You know, I'm not sure about the whole Captain Cold gun for Ray, but the pairing up of Mick and Haircut, as he calls him, <laughs> seems like a brilliant move. Yeah. I think that's the good move out of all of this. Ever since their undercover mission into the Russian prison early in season one, I've really enjoyed the dynamic between these two and them making it seemingly official as partners, at least for next week. It seems like a perfect move to me. 
I don't know if Ray is going to eventually try to recreate his suit. I ultimately think that that's where things are going to go, but it's going to take him a while to assemble and find the necessary materials. And it's definitely going to take some time to find some Dwarf Star material as well. And so I think they need to progress it out. And this giving the cold gun gives him something he can use in battle so that he's not just limited by the weapons of the era that he'll have something that makes him stand out, makes him a member of the the team when they're out on missions and makes him not a liability in Sarah's mind. So I I think that's, it's just a placeholder until he can create a suit again. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I love the idea of Mick and him being partners, at least least for next week. I think you're right on the money when when you mentioned that Russian prisoner episode from season one, because I've been pushing him since then and I've always liked them together as partners and kind of that condemning attitude that Mick has towards Ray. I think that's really yeah I mean I know there isn't a whole lot to discuss this week other than Jackson his response to slavery and Ray and his internal struggles this week Nico but is there anything else I missed that you really wanted to talk about you know I enjoyed the moment General Grant had with Sarah about the burden of command Sarah is now the leader of this team and that means that she will have to send teammates into deadly situations and possibly make a decision or two that will result in the death of a team member or someone they are attempting to save or if not a death then at least someone will be injured in the process. This has been weighing on her, but Grant's words about believing in the mission and surrounding herself with people who believe in your mission and believe in you will not rid her of these feelings, but will make them more bearable. I like that moment, and I really enjoyed John Churchill's portrayal of General Grant this week, so I thought that bared a a mention here. Yeah, no, totally. But yeah, I think that's uh, all there is to say about DC Legends this week and and really to wrap up our entire discussion and move into the closing. On next week's episode, we continue the fall 2016 TV season for DC Nation with an episode of Gotham Supergirl. There will not be a Flash episode next week due to the election coverage. Bummer. But Arrow and DC Legends of Tomorrow will be there. So make sure you catch everything that is on. Again, that's going to be Gotham Supergirl, Arrow, and DC Legends legends for next week but for now and most of the season we're gonna roll dan's pre-recorded closing for you Get at our Across the Airways podcast network website, acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows, available as their own individual programs, get the iTunes Store, get Google Play Store. Guys, for the podcast shows, Cutter Network, we have the DC Nation podcast, located at dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's dcnation.acrosstheairways.com, which reviews popular DC comics related TV shows, get movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast, located at Marvelverse podcast.acrosstheirways.com Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheirways.com which reviews Marvel comics related TV shows and movies. Again, we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheirways.com Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheirways.com In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheirways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes Heroes, Core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory, Got the Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, Got the Marvelverse podcast, Got the Mixed Radio Station, Code by Jack Stifle, Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. Got if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace, Got the Windows Marketplace, Got a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Got for how 
you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got a TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, got Across the Airwaves. There's no thought in there. It's just Across the Airwaves. Join our circle, got Google Plus. Go leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Again, it's 773-809-3363. Call someone sending us an email. Please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Get the subject line. Give you our sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God, the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Okay, so once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy Wu Kim, Joshua Murkay, James Heffel, and Steve Nostro, I'm Nico Reistek. And I'm Michael J. Patty. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys next week, and I hope you enjoyed another week of DC television. See ya! Now return to our regularly scheduled program.